listeners to the Overlook Podcast, which is one of the podcasts that is produced by Tunuka Media. I'm your host, Yemi, and every week I bring you Overlook stories from all over the world. The world is a vast and diverse place, so these stories will include the good, the bad, and the weird. Be sure to come back each week, share the podcast with your friends, and hit the magic subscribe button. To get regular updates on the show and what we're up to, connect with Tunuka Media on social media. Your support is priceless, so don't forget to give a like or a high rating wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Now, it's time for this week's episode. Hi, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you've been here before, welcome back. Our feature story this week discusses one of the most well-loved and well-consumed drinks around the world, and that is coffee. We also discuss stories ranging from organ donation in Canada to a cyclone in Mozambique. There is also a fun fact about sneaky monkeys in Bali. One of the stories this week discusses sexual assaults, so you'll get a warning just before the story starts. That way, you'll have the option to skip that story to the next one if you feel so inclined. So, yeah. Let's just get right into it. Nova Scotia, which is located in eastern Canada, has become the first North American jurisdiction to presume adults are willing to donate their organs when they die. According to CBC News, this switch is being closely watched by medical experts across the continent. It is also a significant change for those who are in dire need of a transplant. Those who are opposed can register to an opt-out list and their families will be able to make a decision while at their bedside to stop the process. There are also some people who are excluded from the automatic opt-in process. This includes children, those who do not have the capacity to understand the concept, and those who have lived in the province for less than a year. Dr. Stephen Bede, who oversees a program called Legacy of Life, which is the province's organ and tissue donation program, is one of the strongest supporters of the change. According to Dr. Bede, researchers had done multiple surveys that showed wide-reaching support for organ donation in Nova Scotia. The issue was that most people were not talking about their wishes with family or those who may ultimately have to make that decision. Not a lot of people find the topic of their death to be particularly riveting. It is an uncomfortable topic. Some people have raised concerns about government overreach and about the limited amount of widespread education or awareness on the topic. In fact, while the law was announced in 2019, the pandemic actually delayed its full implementation. The switch has showed some early signs of success, though. While other Canadian provinces recorded lower donations in 2020, Nova Scotia had more. According to a study by Stanford University, In countries such as Austria, where laws make donation the default option, more than 90% of people register. On the contrary, in countries such as the United States, where people must explicitly opt in, less than 15% actually register. In the U.S., there are over 100,000 people waiting for donations, with 17 people passing away each day while waiting on the list, and at least one person added to the list each day. Here in Canada, national donation rates are low. In 2019, there were only about 21 donors for 1 million people, lower than the United States with 26 donors per million people. 
The new law gives hope to those who need it, and considering that a lot of people are likely to need donations in their lifetime, ranging from kidneys to heart transplants than those who do not, this appears to be a positive step. An explosion has destroyed a residential building in Madrid, Spain. The blast happened near a nursing home and a school. Earlier reports indicate that at least three people have passed away while six others have been injured. According to these reports, someone was working on a boiler at the time of the explosion. The residential complex provided training for priests and also gave meals to homeless people. Thankfully, the school that is located nearby was empty at the time of the blast because classes had not yet resumed. The nursing home residents were also relocated. While the city's mayor has said earlier reports indicate that the blast was caused by a gas leak, as at the time I recorded this episode, the police had not yet officially confirmed the cause of the blast. As a disclaimer, this next story includes discussions of violent sexual assault. If you would prefer to, you can skip ahead using the chapter marker in your podcast player or skip ahead by 4 minutes to the 9 minute and 6 second mark. There have been disturbing allegations of violent sexual assault in the Tigray conflict that is going on in Ethiopia. The United Nations Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict, Pram Miller Patton, has said that she is greatly concerned by the serious allegations emerging from the country's northern region. According to Patton, women have been reportedly forced by military elements to have sex in exchange for basic commodities. In addition, some individuals have been forced to assault members of their own family under threats of violence. The UN, through Patton, has called for a zero-tolerance policy towards all sexually violent crimes. Ethiopia's federal government is led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who won the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in brokering peace with neighboring Ethiopia after about two years of war. In 2020, this same Prime Minister, Minister Abiy, declared war on the Tigray region of his country. The roots of the crisis can be traced to Ethiopia's system of government. The Tigray region is one of 10 semi-autonomous federal states organized along ethnic lines in Ethiopia and home mostly to the Tigrayan people who make up about 6% of Ethiopia's population of more than 110 million people. The Tigrayans had historically been the center of power and influence, controlling the country's government for about three decades. After years of war and regional conflicts, the Tigrayans dominated an alliance that was formed with three other ethno-regional parties. These were the Oromo People's Democratic Organization, the Amhara National Democratic Movement, and the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Movement. The domination of the Tigrayans in the alliance lasted until 2018 when the current prime minister, who is from the Oromo ethnic group, came into power. Under the new prime minister, Minister Abe, leaders from Tigray had complained of being disproportionately targeted in corruption prosecutions, removed from top positions, and broadly used as scapegoats for the country's woes. In 2019, the TLPF, or Tigray People's Liberation Front, withdrew from the four-party coalition in protest after the prime minister merged it into one party called the Prosperity Party. The disagreement got even worse after Tigray held its own election in September 2020. 
in defiance of the federal government's order to postpone all national posts in light of the global pandemic. Well, the federal government cut funding to the region after ruling that the tirade government was unlawful and refused to recognize it. The TLPF then declared this an act of war, and in early November 2020, the Prime Minister said that TLPF had attacked a federal military base in the region, forcing military confrontation. In response, the TLPF said that the story was just an excuse for an attack. The International Crisis Group has termed the developments as both sudden and predictable. There have been thousands of casualties on both sides, and the current reports of sexual assaults are just some of the many, many horrible things that have reportedly happened since the conflict started in November 2020. There are also rising concerns that a conflict in Ethiopia could reverberate across the already fragile Horn of Africa, impacting neighbors Somalia, Eritrea, Djibouti, and Sudan. Both Tigray and the federal government have powerful military forces. This means that the war has the potential to be rather long and drawn out. At least five people have passed away as a result of a fire that broke out at a building under construction at the Serum Institute of India, which is the world's largest vaccine manufacturer. The institute has been contracted to manufacture a billion doses of the AstraZeneca slash Oxford University vaccine. The CEO of the institute, Adar Punwala, said in an interview with the Associated Press last month that it hopes to increase production capacity from 1.5 billion doses to 2.5 billion doses per year by the end of 2021. The new facility was actually part of that expansion. The CEO said that he was deeply saddened by the loss of life and also said that there will be no reduction in vaccine manufacturing because the company has other available facilities. The family of the victims are being offered $34,000 U.S. each. The cause and extent of the damage is still unclear as of the time of this recording. There has been mild damage and some flooding after tropical cyclone Eloise made landfall in the coastal city of Beira in uh, Mozambique. The city houses one of the country's most important ports. The cyclone has since lost its strength, thankfully, and has been downgraded to just a tropical storm. Posts across social media showed cars submerged in water, some walls collapsed, and there appeared to be quite a bit of flooding. Baira was also the epicenter of damage from Cyclone Idai that hit in March 2019. Idai ravaged the country's Baira region and killed more than a thousand people across Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe. Eloise is the second cyclone to hit central Mozambique this season after Charlene in December. However, since Idai, a lot more people now know what a cyclone is and now they take it very seriously. Apparently, macaque monkeys at a temple in Bali are able to spot expensive items to steal and ransom for food. A recent study found that macaque monkeys at the Uluwatu Temple in Bali, Indonesia, who frequently steal items from humans such as bags, hats, sunglasses, tablets, and phones, and hold them for ransom, were intelligent enough to comprehend which items had the highest value to visitors, such as an electronic item, and would only release that item back after receiving food they perceived to be of corresponding value. This is a cool cheeky fact. Well, except you're being blackmailed by monkeys, in which case 
Yikes. A strong, shallow earthquake recently shook Indonesia's Sulawesi Island in the middle of the night. The impact toppled homes and buildings, triggering landslides, and injured at least 600 people and led to the death of at least 34. Earthquakes are classified in categories ranging from minor to great, depending on their magnitude. A quake with a magnitude between 2 and 3 is the lowest normally perceptible to humans. A magnitude 5 quake is considered moderate, and an earthquake of magnitude 6 or greater is considered major. According to the Indonesian Disaster Agency, at least 300 houses and a health clinic were damaged and about 15,000 people were being housed in temporary shelters. Indonesia, which is a vast archipelago of 260 million people, is frequently struck by earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and tsunamis because of its location on the so-called Ring of Fire, which is an arc of volcanoes and fault lines in the Pacific Basin. Put your hands up if you love coffee. If you listen to Africa in My Kitchen, another podcast I co-host with my friend Ijema from 234 Pantry, you would have heard me declare undying love for coffee time and time again. I mean, we had a whole special episode called Coffee and Donuts, and she doesn't even like coffee. So what does all that have to do with our next story? It's about Kenyan coffee and new laws that would help farmers earn more for their top-notch coffee. Kenyan coffee beans are deeply loved and enjoyed by coffee drinkers all around the world. As someone who has been fortunate to try Kenyan coffee, I can testify to that. While it is listed as one of the top five coffees in the world, Kenya only produces less than 1% of the world's coffee and over 90% of the coffee it produces gets shipped internationally. So they don't even drink a lot of coffee themselves. Okay, okay. Maybe I've gone a little long on the Kenyan coffee intro. I just really love coffee and I'm passionate about fair compensation. So I may have gone into a little bit of a rabbit hole with this one. If you drink coffee, tell me how you drink yours on Instagram. I drink mine black with no sugar and fresh ginger. It is awesome. Okay, back to the story. Let's not get distracted. The Kenyan government is now debating a new pricing formula to help boost the earnings of coffee farmers in the region. This could have a huge impact, ensuring fairer trade in Kenyan coffee. Since at least 2005, the global price of the coffee crop has plunged well below the average cost of production in most parts of the world, especially in countries like Kenya, where coffee is mostly hand-picked rather than picked by machines. In the midst of all this, there is now the presence of middlemen who tend to rip off coffee farmers by price fixing. Even without the explicit price fixing, it is relatively easy to imagine the middlemen will want a cut of the ever-shrinking pie. This pricing issue, coupled with rising temperatures, have left a lot of farmers struggling to stay in the trade. These low prices have persisted despite steadily increasing global demand and rising retail prices for coffee. Think of the price per cup that you may have paid in 2005 and the price right now. Even adjusting for inflation, transportation, administration and other costs, there is a gap. This is an uncomfortable truth. Regardless of how much you pay, the chances are pretty high that only very little of that money gets back into the hands of the farmers who grew it. According to haifa.org, 
farmers generally earn less than 1% of the sale of a cup of coffee at the coffee shop. There is an awesome illustration by Hefe.org, which I've put up in the blog. It illustrates the coffee supply chain in a very clear way. It is worth taking a look at. Check out the blog if you have not done so yet. When implemented, the coffee farmers will be guaranteed good deals from the coffee they produce. The price of coffee at the Nairobi Coffee Exchange or NCE will now be guided by the price that a similar grade of coffee fetches on the international market. The new pricing formula aims to stabilize coffee prices and minimize price fixing by middlemen who rip off coffee farmers in the industry. According to Kenya's Agriculture Cabinet Secretary, Peter Munia, coffee farmers will be empowered to choose factories that will process their produce from a pool of three interested millers. They will also have a representative at each coffee milling and buying sourcing stage to ensure accountability in the whole coffee value chain. Tea and coffee industries are Kenya's most important exports. Last year, the Kenyan government launched a 15 million US dollar World Bank backed revitalization program for its tea and coffee sectors. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm pretty excited about news that farmers will be supported by law to actually get more for their labor. It won't be left up to the discretion of middlemen or businesses. Now, it appears at the very least that they will have some form of legal recourse. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte and his entire cabinet resigned this week to take political responsibility for a scandal involving investigations into child welfare payments that had wrongly labeled thousands of parents as fraudsters. Under the scandal, as many as 26,000 families were wrongly accused by the Dutch tax authorities of fraudulently claiming child allowance over several years from 2012. As many as 10,000 families were then told to repay tens of thousands of euros. The tax authority admitted in 2020 that at least 11,000 of the 26,000 families were singled out for special scrutiny because of their ethnic origin or dual nationality. This has since fueled allegations of systemic racism in the Netherlands. Many wrongfully accused parents were plunged into debt when tax officials demanded payment. Some have reported becoming homeless as a result. In a nationally televised speech, Rutte pledged that his government will continue to work to compensate affected parents as quickly as possible. The government has apologized for the tax office's methods and in March 2020, Aramacked 500 million euros or 607 million US dollars to compensate more than 20,000 parents. The government's resignation brings an end to a decade of office for Rutte, although his party is expected to win the next election in March 2021, putting him first in line to begin talks to form the next government. If he succeeds in forming a new coalition, he will most likely again become prime minister. This is our last story for this week's episode. According to Reuters, South African scientists have discovered chemical compounds that can potentially be used to treat malaria and even kill the malaria parasite in its infectious stage. This is a breakthrough. As most drugs that are currently available for malaria cannot kill the parasite in this way. 
The discovery was made by scientists at Johannesburg Witts Research Institute for Malaria in partnership with the University of Pretoria and scientists for the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, along with other partners in the U.S. and Spain. According to the World Health Organization, malaria killed more than 400,000 people across the world in 2019. According to latest figures from the WHO, all but a few thousand of them were located in Africa. Speaking to Routers, Professor Lynn Berkholtz, Professor in Biochemistry and South African Research Chair in Sustainable Malaria Control at the University of Pretoria, pointed out that most existing drugs only kill the parasite after it becomes established in the liver or after it has infected red blood cells. They do not have the ability to tackle it at the stage where it is transmittable to other people through mosquito bites. She further explained that their research involved finding compounds that are able to interrupt malaria in its transitional or shape-shifting phases. The new chemical compound is a promising development. However, more tests still need to be done in order for the compound to be used in treatments. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget, you are valued and you matter. Catch you all on the next one. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in every week for a new episode. Overlooked is a Tunica Media production, which also includes shows like Africa in My Kitchen, with more on the way. So follow Tunica Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to be in the loop. Until next time, have yourself a great week ahead. <laughs>